So I created a new website, www.whatsupdoc.com. This is great news, right? No concerns. You are listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to the Business of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Kaskill. Joining me today is Jim Bream, an attorney with the offices of Query and Harrow. Jim concentrates on the defense of hospitals, managed care organizations, and physicians in professional liability programs. Jim has handled cases in the trial and appellate courts and is a featured speaker and guest lecturer on various healthcare and medical legal issues. Jim, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So I got this new website. Congratulations. And, uh, I'm thinking uh, I'm really cool. I'm in the 21st century and I'm ready to rock and roll. Awesome. I guess the question, though, is with all that excitement that you've generated over your new website and the video that you're featuring on YouTube, have you thought about your liability exposures that the website might be creating. Not for a second. Let's talk about some of the potential risks that are out there for website liability for physician practices. Lovely, as if we didn't have enough. Now we need this more liability. Great. It's great being a doctor. <laughs> doctor in the 21st century has to be aware of 21st century issues. One of the first areas of exposure from a website is the issue of jurisdiction. And what we mean by jurisdiction is does the court in a particular area have power over you, the ability to control a set of litigation and legal issues that may affect you? The court really has two types of jurisdiction. One is personal. Can they actually bring you physically into the courthouse and subject you to their rule? And the other is subject matter jurisdiction. Is the issue that's being presented in terms of medical malpractice or a contract issue, one over which the court has authority. With the exception of federally funded clinics, typically you're going to have malpractice cases being tried at the state court level. All right, so what does any of that have to do with my website? Even on a more limited basis, we're talking about the county of your residence or where the incident occurred as typically directing where the lawsuit will be brought. For instance, it may be important for you to have your lawsuit tried in a county that more traditionally is defense-oriented or has a caliber of jurors that are more from the business community and consider the value of a dollar in a more conservative manner, right? Versus those who may be from a county that is better known for runaway verdicts or exorbitant values that are placed on cases. So you have that interest in being in that county, right? Right. The other thing is, is what if you're a small town provider or you're a local provider? You certainly, on the defense side, would have an interest in being tried in front of that hometown where they appreciate the services that you're providing. They know good old Dr. Larry Caskell because almost everybody in town has gone to him. Or they appreciate the fact that you are one of the only obstetricians or one of the only neurosurgeons practicing in the area. That certainly inures to your benefit in a defense. Just the opposite of that is this website that you've created because the Internet is global in nature. It reaches out all around the world without you even trying or making any effort for it to do so. Case law has looked at this issue, not necessarily in the context of a physician practice, but in the context of where jurisdiction applies for Internet business. And what the case law has boiled down to is essentially, does your website provide information only, or is it more of an interactive basis? 
let's just take the case of a website that does not allow communication between patient and physician, and it's really just information only. Let's say you have a bariatric surgery group, and what they've done is they've listed their locations, they've identified the types of surgery that they perform, and maybe they've given brief bios on their physicians, and then they have contact information. That's all they have. It's purely informational. The courts traditionally will not see someone accessing that from outside of the state of residence as having a opportunity to bring that physician or that group into their state to face the courts of that state. So for instance, if my bariatric surgery group is in Minnesota and I'm sitting down in Florida and I access that site, I go to Minnesota for the surgery, I return to Florida, it's unlikely I'll be able to require you to come down to Florida for the lawsuit that I've filed. Opposite of that is the more interactive type of website. Let's say same group sitting in Minnesota uses the website as a screening tool so that you're actually inputting data about your weight, your height, your past medical history, and they're screening you from Florida as to whether or not you are an appropriate candidate for gastric bypass or for lap banding. So that sounds more dangerous. It is. You're exposing yourself to the fact that you may now be practicing medicine in the state of Florida. And that raises two issues. One, jurisdiction. It's going to be a lot more difficult for you to defend the lawsuit out of Minnesota when you have to go to Florida for court. The second issue is, are you licensed to practice medicine in the state of Florida? That can be a very serious offense. And if a court deems or a professional board deems that you are actually attempting to practice medicine outside of your state of licensure, you can face some fairly severe penalties. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Larry Caskell. I'm talking today with Jim Bream, attorney and featured speaker on various health care and medical legal issues. Today we're talking about whether or not you should have a website and the risks involved that you may not even think about. Jim, has there been any cases that have gone to trial or not even to trial for what we were talking about, someone who uh, has stuff entered into their website and they're in a different state? There are cases that I've come across where various entities are practicing outside of their state of residence, and because of their website, they're found to have conferred jurisdiction in another area. Think about some of these multi-state practices or practices that sit in a border town. Right. You hear about examples that come to my mind. Michiana, mm-hmm. Texarkana, the Northeast Corridor, New England. You know, If you're advertising on your website that you are one of New England's premier internists, or you are the uh, cardiologist, interventional cardiologist of choice for Texarkana, and you sit in Texas, are you now exposing yourself to liability in another state? I've seen, for instance, where healthcare systems cross the border from Kansas City to Kansas and Missouri and have been found to confer jurisdiction in the other state because of their advertising and their website services. You can even see that with systems that operate in multiple counties and so that you may be exposing yourself by virtue of your website to counties that are less favorable. 
Our attorneys now offering the service of looking at a doctor's website and saying, you are compliant, you are not compliant. They absolutely are. I'd be happy to do that. <laughs> Thank you. My pleasure. Let's see what What's Up Doc has in right. terms of its advertising and exposure. Any benefits? Any way a website can actually help me? Absolutely. I think you can look at this and say, is the glass half full? Websites can provide a tremendous amount of access to information, can invest the patient in the process. So I'm no longer just this passive member of the physician-patient team. I'm interacting with the website and gaining information. I'm making myself a more helpful and a much greater benefited patient by virtue of the fact that I now understand my procedure. Perhaps maybe your website features animation of a cardiac catheterization, and I can see that cardiac catheterization and what I need to expect. I can access the typical types of signs and symptoms for a particular disease entity or disorder. Or I can see what the common complications are from a drug regimen. This all makes me a more informed patient. And I think that websites and internet information greatly enhances the informed consent process with a physician. But is there a way to document that the patient actually, is there a way to ever, let's say it goes to trial and uh, the patient actually did go to your website and did read everything he was supposed to read but didn't click off a box saying, uh, I have read this. But then it comes out in discovery that uh, you go back to their computer and see that they actually did visit all the proper web pages. There's two questions there. One, can we explore this through electronic discovery and document that a patient did indeed access your website? Yes, absolutely. And the courts have now recognized the wealth of information that's available through electronic discovery, and there are provisions to access that information. But I think even more progressively, can you as a physician set up a system where you require a patient in order to access that information to log in with a unique identifier or patient code? And does that then create an electronic signature that you can track to see that Jim Bream did, in fact, interact with the website and engage in the informed consent process on his upcoming cardiac catheterization? I think that's tremendously helpful. It's going to be a great defense tool, but even more importantly for present-day management. It's going to create a better physician-patient relationship and a more informed patient. Jim, where do you fall on using email in terms of doctors talking to patients, you know, through their websites, not through their websites, or should it not even be done? We were joking the other day as we were watching uh, some of the, the kids' text message that they don't even pick up the telephone anymore. They just text each other and someone was telling me they were watching two kids text each other from across the room <laughs> rather than talking to each other. You know what? The day is coming when basically it's already here, but it's coming into our generations where people have a preference to communicate electronically. And so we can't ignore that. I don't think that email is necessarily a curse. And I do think that we will see shortly that email will be the preferred method of communication for some, not all, but for some patients. What you need to do is to make sure that your email communications are secure, that they're protected to the unique patient, and that they don't run the risk of any potential HIPAA violations where the information may be stored or shared 
on a computer that has access from individuals other than just the particular patient. That's pretty difficult for the doctor to confirm that he is, if he's sending an email out to his patient, that his the patient's daughter won't click on that patient's email. I mean, how can I be liable for that? You don't confirm that each time you send out the email. You confirm it before you send out your first email. And you do that by having the patient sign a document or engage in a interaction on your website by confirming that they're authorizing you to send by email. And with that authorization, the assumption is there that the email to which the information is being sent is secure and private to that individual. On that note, I'd like to thank our guest, Jim Bream, for coming on the show today. I'm Dr. Larry Caskell, and you've been listening to The Business of Medicine on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, send your email to xm at reachmd.com. And thank you for listening.